0: Before we begin, we want to tell you about a live online event on Thursday the 13th of August. It's called The End of the Universe and it's by cosmologist Katie Mack. Will our universe collapse in upon itself, rip itself apart or even in the next five minutes succumb to an inescapable expanding bubble of doom? What's going on, Val?
1: Oh yes, we know the universe had a beginning, we talk about the Big Bang a lot, but Katie is obsessed with how it will all end. In her lecture she'll explore five possible finales for the universe and what they would look like because we sure ain't going to be around to see them and there will be a question and answer session with the audience after her talk. It's a live online event on Thursday the 13th of August. Go to newscientist.com events to find out more about the fate of the cosmos.
0: Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your guide to the week's most compelling, must-know and most important happenings in the world of science. I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our podcast editor.
1: And I'm Valerie Jemison. I'm Creative Director of New Scientist Events. On this week's show we're joined by New Scientist Chief Reporter Adam Vaughan. Hi Adam.
0: Hello. Coming up on the show we've got an examination of what an evolutionary perspective is telling us about the sensitive subject of pregnancy loss, of miscarriage. We've also got the latest on the ongoing Arctic heatwave. We look at a new understanding of the climate of Mars in the distant past. And we discuss what the latest thinking is on the second wave of coronavirus infections. You need to understand the K number as well as the R number now.
1: But first, the small matter of how life began.
0: Yeah, we don't shy away from the big questions on this podcast. And they don't get much bigger than the mystery of the origin of life. It's a massively complicated question because, for a start, we can't really agree on what life even is, as we've mentioned before on the podcast when we're talking about Mars, but also because the very earliest life we know of on Earth is from fossils about 3.5 billion years ago, and these show microorganisms that are already really complicated.
1: Yes, these are microbes found in ancient rocks from Western Australia. That's right, isn't it Rowan?
0: Yeah, so yeah, these are really uh, well-preserved ancient fossils from about a billion years after the formation of the planet, but they're basically bacteria.
1: So the problem is there's a gap from having nothing but sterile rock to suddenly having complex bacterial cells. How do we get from nothing to cells that can harness energy and grow and reproduce?
0: Yeah, that's the question. How did life spring into existence? It's the cover story of the magazine this week by science writer Mike Marshall. He boils life down to things with three essential qualities. A way to compartmentalise themselves, so that means a cell wall or a membrane. A way to obtain energy from the surroundings, so a form of metabolism. And a way to build itself, the instructions for putting this together, which is the genes. What he says is that we've been held back in thinking about the origin of life because scientists have been focusing on each of these aspects separately and basically thinking that if you can create just one component of life, then maybe the other components will appear. But he says this is like building a car by making a chassis and hoping that wheels will just appear.
1: <laughs> I like so, that analogy.
0: Yeah. So instead it might be better to try an everything at once approach and see if it's possible to build a crude but complete living cell in one go.
1: This is crazy. I mean, this is surely an incredibly unlikely event.
0: Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? It reminds me of how people misunderstood natural selection and compared the evolution of the eye in all its complexity to, like, a hurricane blowing through a scrapyard and just assembling a 747. So super unlikely. But it turns out you can get simple chemicals to self-assemble into some interesting things.
1: Okay, so what's the simplest sort of proto-life form you can get just to come into existence on its own?
0: We go into this in the mag story, but basically scientists have managed to create protocells with lipids. These are fatty acids that form a membrane, like the wall of a bubble. And they do that by getting chunks of RNA inside the bubble.
1: OK, so where did the RNA come from?
0: Yeah, so it's a bit of a cheat because they have to introduce the RNA already formed. So RNA, as you know, it's the single-stranded form of DNA which holds the genetic material. Um, We've never found RNA that's assembled itself from simpler component parts. But we found amino acids and other bits that do self-assemble, and these are components of RNA. So it's not too much of a cheat to imagine that RNA itself could possibly self-assemble on occasion. And with this uh, caveat, by adding RNA, scientists have found that the protocells grow and divide just by physical and chemical processes, without the biochemical machinery that cells usually need.
1: OK, so they have a sort of dividing cell. Where's it getting its energy from, though?
0: Yeah, that's that's still the missing bit. They're working on that. But scientists are making progress in how these components of RNA can form and how the components of the lipids that make cell walls can just come into existence.
1: So it sounds like they're getting there slowly. Is the end point of this that they'll go on and create life in the laboratory?
0: Yeah, they never say that. I guess probably they're worried about being... Frankensteins. But um, yeah, I guess that is the the end point. At least they'd create a proto-life form, or a kind of cell that can exist and replicate under certain very restricted conditions.
1: Okay, so tell me what these conditions are.
0: So it seems that most of the chemistry needed to make these key components for life depends on ultraviolet light. And you also need a cycle of wetting and drying. And that seems to rule out an origin of life on the deep sea hydrothermal vents, which has been a popular idea for a long time. Uh, So a better place from this everything first point of view is a chemical rich puddle or pool on the land. um, And perhaps it's in some volcanic fault. So there's a geological heat.
1: So what could this tell us about um, one of my favourite subjects, life elsewhere in the solar system?
0: Yeah, well, it's a bit bad news, actually, Val, because if you need UV radiation and warmth enough to evaporate water, it might rule out uh, or it might make it very difficult to think of how life can get going on Jupiter's moon Europa or Saturn's moon Enceladus.
1: Mm, I see what you mean because both are thought to have liquid oceans under a crust of ice, but they don't have the conditions for life to begin according to this idea because the UV won't get to it and uh, or, or you wouldn't have the cycle of wetting and drying.
0: Yeah, life forms could probably live there if they were plonks on it, but those places don't look like promising sites for life to originate. And as for Mars, well, we're going to come back to that later in the show.
1: But as for life on Earth, maybe it began in a warm puddle.
0: Yep, uh, we all have humble beginnings if you go back far enough.
1: And now it's time for Climate Hope or Doom, when we take a look at the latest news to do with climate change and decide whether we feel the glasses half full or half empty – this week, Adam, you've been looking at the shocking extent of the heatwave in the Arctic this year, so I feel I can already hazard a guess at which way this hope or doom segment is going to go.
2: Yeah, I've been, I have been—I think I've been speaking to too many scientists in North America and Europe about this. Um, I mean, the Arctic this year, the Arctic heat, the fires and the amount of ice we've seen melting, they've stood out even for scientists who are well versed in what's known as polar amplification which means the region has on average warmed at twice the rate of the planet
0: yeah and it's not just the peaks of temperature though is it it's the duration of the hot weather
2: yeah that's right i mean the the arctic you do get a lot of natural variability and you do get sometimes these heat waves but they're often very short this time it's just been hot for very long so you know it was the arctic circle was 10 degrees above average in june but it's been around eight degrees above average for around six months so it's a really long time um, and the the driver of it is, it is partly a natural cycle so it's um there's a sort of series of steps um, that have ended up in the North Atlantic jet stream kicking over a load of heat and energy towards Siberia but it's not just a natural cycle we know it would have been the heat that we've seen this year would have been almost impossible without the greenhouse gases we've pumped into the atmosphere there's some good attribution science done earlier in the year and that found that Siberia's heat wave was made at least 600 times more likely by climate change
0: so we've had uh, these record high temperatures and at the same time we've got this epically low extent of sea ice um tell us about the sea ice
2: yeah the sea ice i mean the sea ice is always a hard one to know because it can change by september when it when we find out you know, the record low. But at the moment, it is tracking below 2012, which was the record year. Um, you know, it's millions of square kilometres lower than the long term average. And, you know, in just looking on land, you know, the fires that they are emitting a huge amount of carbon emissions. Um, July alone managed to release more CO2 emissions than the whole of last year. and in terms of records that that's a new record because last year was a new record so we're at the highest level of 18 years of modern records Uh, and I guess one thing I was struck by when I spoke to people was that all these sort of individual elements are worrying on their own but this year we've got them all at once so last year saw record fires the sea ice was bad but not unprecedented this time we've got them simultaneously.
0: Is it possible to firefight those fires to put them out directly?
2: not really on it honestly i mean i spoke to people about this last year as well as this year and it's just vast vast areas you know we're talking about hundreds of square kilometers some of these fires and um yeah they're also in incredibly remote places the russians this year have been trying to do some firefighting um but it's tough i mean they've tried really radical stuff like you know seeding rainfall and clouds um not clear how successful that's been uh, and the, the forest and the vegetation up there are just very dry. they're normally wet uh, and cold, um, but now you've got these dry fuels and you've also got the permafrost pouring out and that those the permafrost underneath that uh, was protecting these deeper soil layers uh, of, of peat and now that permafrost is, is going away and that means that that peat is now exposed to you know potentially burning.
0: And these are the zombie fires, the so called zombie fires that seem to have been burning for over a year.
2: Yeah, so we've heard a lot about zombie fires, uh, but researchers are still divided on how clear cut the evidence is for them. If it's true, then that is bad news, as that means there's a sort of short term feedback loop, which could mean a new ignition source for fires next year.
0: Ah, so this segment is unalloyed doom, but I'm going to try and squeeze some hope out of it because there has been some news this week that BP is cutting its oil production by a huge amount, by 40%, it says, um, by 2030, and it's boosting low-carbon investment. So so I think we can go for 70% doom, 30% hope for this week. Yeah, that sounds about right. Time out. Time for our regular reminder of the bargain offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist Magazine by using the code POB20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for full access to the wealth of stuff available to subscribers.
1: Yes, there's tons of stuff to explore there. There's videos, interviews and an archive of unparalleled scientific treasures. Use POD20 at checkout or newscientist.com to get your bargain. Now on to the coronavirus latest. This week we've seen the global death toll go above 700,000 and we've seen the infection rate growing again in many countries. All of this is fueling fears of a second wave of infections. In the UK, new modelling is suggesting that we could even see a second wave this winter if the country's testing and contact tracing system doesn't improve by the time schools fully reopen and people return to workplaces. Adam, you've been reporting on this.
2: Yeah, this so this modelling was on some of the front pages of newspapers this week. There's been quite a lot of interest in it. Jasmina uh, Panofsky griffiths at University College London and her colleagues, they found that there's the risk of the UK experiencing a second peak in December uh, that would be about 2.3 times the size of the first one, which is obviously not good news. Her, what her team did was they were modelling the amount of testing and tracing that would be needed to stop the virus rebounding as society eases restrictions. And their modelling found that if all children... In the UK return to school by early September, as is currently planned in England, and will already, you know, they'll already be back in Scotland. And almost three quarters of people return to workplaces. The UK would need to be testing 75% of symptomatic COVID cases to stay on top of the spread of the virus. And the current rate in England for comparison, which the team uses a basis for their UK modeling, is 50%. So it's 75 versus 50. And the proportion of their contact trace would have to jump from about 50% in England now. To 68% for the whole of the UK.
0: So can we up our game by that much?
2: The honest answer is I don't know Rowan I mean the Dido Harding who you know heads the sort of test and trace scheme in England you know she sort of came out and was sort of defending the service after this and we know you know from sort of some of the anecdotal reporting that's come out from people who work from contract tracing which I've heard as well from people who work there is you know that they're under capacity at the moment so there is some spare capacity and I guess another thing we don't know yet is how you how in, how interesting and useful some of the sort of local testing and tracing services that some councils are setting up are going to be.
1: And what's the latest about the role of children in transmitting the virus?
2: My colleague Claire Wilson looked into this earlier in the year and initial research has been inconclusive but it's indicated that the risk of children catching COVID-19 at school may be lower than first feared. There's a new study this week that supports that idea. It was um, looking at 15 schools and 10 preschool childcare centres in New South Wales in Australia during the first wave of infections. And it found transmission rates were relatively low. Only three of the schools and one of the centres saw secondary transmission of the virus.
0: So does that mean, thank God, we we can reopen schools? It certainly looks like it
2: for primary schools. There's a bit more debate um, around secondary schools, and Neil Ferguson at Imperial College London was talking about that this week. Um, but it does look like transmission in schools can be kept low and manageable. Um, one of the researchers on the UK study this week said that we have stronger evidence children play a limited role in transmission. He said, you know, they do transmit the virus and there can be outbreaks in schools. But he pointed to this New South Wales paper to show that there's little evidence they drive significant transmission in schools. This is um, Russell Viner at University College London. He, he He said most of the outbreaks appear to have been triggered by staff rather than children, interestingly.
0: I heard that we might need to close pubs again in order to allow schools to reopen. Is that because basically we're making a trade-off between different parts of our society that we can get functioning again?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland was talking about that this week, and England's chief medical officer Chris Whitty he said on 31st of July that new data with you know showing rising infections in the country suggested the UK probably reached near the limit or the limits of what we can do in terms of opening up society. And following that, we had Graham Medley at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine who said that might mean closing pubs to allow schools to reopen.
0: OK, and about the infection rate, we've heard a lot over the months about the R number, the reproduction number, and that's the average number of people that each infected person passes the virus onto. And before lockdown in the UK, the R number was about somewhere between two and three, and now it's around one, but now we're hearing about another parameter, the K number.
2: Yeah, just when you thought you knew it, or when you, yeah. just when you thought you were down with the COVID jargon, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the key word that you mentioned, you said there was average, right? Because it's now appreciated this great variability in the number of new cases that each infected person generates. So this can be described by the epidemic's K number. So this is the dispersion parameter. So the lower value of K signifies more variability um, so, brought, you know, crudely speaking, of a lower number, that means you've got more super spreaders, basically. Um, you need to know both the R and the K for a good picture of how the virus is spreading for a community. And According to one analysis of how COVID-19 has spread to other countries from China, by the end of February, the K number was 0.1, which is extremely low.
0: So that means that there was extremely high variation in the amount of... In- infections that each person was responsible for. In other words, there were clusters and some people went on to infect many people.
2: Exactly. So it was a few people causing a lot of the infections, the so-called super spreaders. Um, The researchers estimated that 80% of the cases were caused by about 10% of infected people. So those 10% could trigger a cluster of infections, while most other people would pass on coronavirus to no one else, and a few would give it to just one other person. So, in short super spreading is really important part of this pandemic
1: now we've got lots of good examples of this in the magazine this week and we'll tweet a link to the story at new scientist pod But basically, it's suggesting that super spreading events tend to happen in indoor spaces with people in close proximity. Social occasions have uh, led to more clusters than exposure in the workplace or home. So, mass transmissions have occurred at weddings, in temples, bars, and karaoke parties, for instance, where there's been a lot of singing. And the risk seems to be higher if people are raising their voices in some way, such as singing or shouting.
0: So, drunken carousing in pubs. So, it doesn't look like a Great idea to reopen pubs just yet.
1: The researcher told us that indoor bars are a particular risk. (laughs) Mm. That's our sci-fi alert. Rowan, this usually means we're reporting something in the real world that's already been in science fiction. What is it this week?
0: Yeah, well, I'm finding it hard to stay away from Mars at the moment, which perhaps it's because of all the missions that have been launching there recently – uh, but this week, our space reporter, Leia Crane, has a new analysis of the southern highlands of Mars that is challenging a lot about what we thought about the history of the planet.
1: Now, if I remember correctly, um, we know that Mars was warmer and wetter way back in the past, and we've got really good evidence for this, haven't we?
0: Well, I thought we did, but it turns out that evidence isn't quite as good as we thought. The, so the idea that Mars was warm in the past basically rests on the examination of images of networks of valleys in the southern highlands and these valleys are thought to have been created by running water long ago and essentially that's the main reason we thought it was warmer on the planet in the past. I'm sensing a but. Yeah but but if you look at those more carefully these valleys um, and now that this is what the more detailed analysis has done it turns out that many of them may have been carved out by glaciers um, and if that's the case, then early Mars might have been cold and icy and not warm and wet.
1: OK, but that's not good news for the evolution of life, is it? Or for the um, rovers that are on their way there or are about to launch there that are going to look for evidence of finding past life in Mars. Um, but first, tell us about these new findings. You know, What makes them think that these valleys were made by glaciers rather than running water?
0: Yeah, so the researchers looked at 10,000 of these features on Mars, their striations and channels and valleys in 66 valley networks across the planet and they modelled how they might have formed. Uh, There are four options. Either the valleys are carved out by rivers created by rain or snow, either they're created by glacial movement or by water melting beneath the glaciers or by groundwater seeping up through the surface – uh, and they found that the formation of 22 of the valley networks is best explained by water melting and flowing beneath glaciers. And the researcher says that glaciation can explain a lot of these valleys very easily and that, that this view reconciles climate models. So that the climate models of Mars say that extensive glaciation was likely to have occurred in the past, and that reconciles it with the geological record.
1: Now, you said um, at the start of the show um, uh, on the story on the origin of life that you were going to come back to Mars. So tell us more about it.
0: Yeah, so a warm and wet early Mars has is, is always been a promising place for life to develop. But if the planet was cold, then it's harder to see how life could get going.
1: Yes, but but, but Mars was volcanically active. You know, It has, after all, the biggest volcano in the solar system in the shape of Olympus Mons.
0: Yeah, this is a big plus, as it means the planet may have had these geothermal ponds, um, and you can imagine warm lakes and ponds that periodically dry out. Um, And as we said at the beginning, this is a good place for the origin of life. And even if there's colossal sheets of ice, that doesn't kill off the idea of life on Mars, because the ice sheets could actually provide a nice environment. They'd be thermally stable, and this big sheet of ice would protect any life form getting going it would protect that from dangerous radiation on the surface and it would provide water.
1: Okay so what's the sci-fi link?
0: I almost forgot about the sci-fi link Um, it's Doctor Who. Um, A few years ago the David Tennant Doctor travelled to Mars in the year 2059 uh, to a human base on the planet. This episode's called The Waters of Mars and the Doctor finds that there's an alien virus in the glacial water that the base is using for its drinking water. Now, I'm not saying that the glaciers of Mars contain intelligent viruses, but, you know, maybe maybe it's something we should be aware of when we get up there and start using that water for our actual Mars base.
2: I saw, that reminds me, I saw the SpaceX that made their first test of Starship. That's the uh, spacecraft they intend to use to take people to Mars and presumably maybe take their own water.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how this is progressing. There's still a long way to go, but things are happening uh, that Starship uh, test flight we saw, that has a capacity or eventually of 100 people. Uh, and then we got the safe return of NASA astronauts um, earlier this week as well on a commercial SpaceX spacecraft. Um, with all this going on, it's hard to argue with the corporate line from SpaceX that, that this is a new era. Gwynne Shotwell, the CEO of SpaceX, said, we're trying to really change the paradigm of human spaceflight. Next up, the sensitive subject of miscarriage and how an evolutionary perspective can shed some light on what's going on here.
1: Yes, having a miscarriage is absolutely devastating. It's one of those moments in life when your world seems to just shatter in an instant and whatever happens next, things are never quite the same again. It's also a lot more common than you might imagine. I spoke on the line to Sydney to our Australia reporter, Alice Klein, about this. Alice, you've written in this week's magazine about the latest research into pregnancy loss. Now, I I have to admit that um, although we've worked together for several years, I'm afraid I had no idea that you'd had a miscarriage until I read your piece.
3: No, and I mean, I had no idea that you'd had a miscarriage either until we started talking about this article. So I think there's this kind of whole silence and stigma around miscarriages Which means that even if you're, you know, sometimes your close friends or your family or your colleagues have had one, you often have no idea.
1: And when you discover you're pregnant, you know, almost from the moment you get that positive result on a stick, your mind just fast forwards to the future. I thought about names. I looked at baby clothes, um, wondered what I'd be like as a parent. I found myself downloading every pregnancy app and I bought loads of books and yet no one... Um, mentions miscarriage. the har- Miscarriage hardly gets a mention.
3: Yeah, I mean, I was exactly the same. I got really excited. I didn't even really think about the risk of miscarriage. And, you know, I didn't know anyone who'd had a miscarriage. So it just didn't really, it wasn't really on my radar. You know, I think probably because of that, because of that silence around miscarriage, um, it explains why, you know, I think a lot of people don't realise how often they happen. So for example, I came across a US survey that found that that most people think that that miscarriages occur in fewer than 5% of pregnancies but actually the latest estimates suggest that miscarriages probably occur in about 60% of pregnancies although often before a woman even realizes that she's pregnant um so it might just seem like a a late or heavy period
1: yeah, so there's this huge um difference between the perception of miscarriage and, and the reality of it, but also the huge difference between the number of conceptions and the number of successful pregnancies. I mean, when I miscarried like many women, I asked myself over and over again, you know, was it something I'd done wrong? You know, had I, you know, overdone it at the gym, had I um had I been eating the wrong things? Was I working too hard?
3: Yeah, and I had those same feelings too. But when I started researching this article, I discovered that actually in the vast majority of miscarriages, um, they've got nothing to do with the woman's health or lifestyle factors or anything like that. They're actually just due to random chromosomal errors that occur in human embryos when they form. And for reasons that we don't really understand, it seems that human human embryos have a very high rate of chromosomal errors Um, And that means that we also have quite a high rate of miscarriages compared to other animals.
1: When people hear that you've had a miscarriage, they often say, oh, it wasn't meant to be, which um, in my case, I didn't find particularly helpful to hear. But in a sense, it does sound like they're right. How is science helping us to understand what's going on?
3: Yeah, well, a lot of what we've learned over the last few decades has come from the IVF field. And that's found that up to 80% of human embryos that form have at least one chromosomally abnormal cell. And we're starting to learn that our bodies have these highly sophisticated mechanisms for sensing which embryos um, uh, have too many chromosomally abnormal cells to survive and letting go of them in the form of a miscarriage.
1: How do scientists even go about studying this sort of thing? It's, it's a very sort of sensitive subject, isn't it? Very difficult to study.
3: Yeah, well, as you can imagine, um, there are a lot of technical and ethical issues with trying to understand early pregnancy because you don't want to do any interventions or any tests or anything that might actually harm um, the pregnancy. But there are some researchers at London Women's Clinic who've come up with some clever ways of getting around this. In particular, um, they've been interested in what happens uh, to an embryo when it first implants In the uterus lining, which is known as the endometrium. And to do that, they have been using um, embryos that were donated by previous IVF patients.
1: This um, implantation stage is one of the the most crucial times in pregnancy, isn't it? Um, We now know that three quarters of miscarriage occur at that implantation stage. So, what did the researchers find? Yeah, so basically, they added
3: the embryos to a layer of endometrial cells in a dish, um, which was meant to mimic the uterus lining. And they found that when they added healthy embryos, these endometrial cells kind of flopped to them and released all these nutrients and growth factors and things to help them implant. But when they added chromosomally abnormal embryos, the endometrial cells actually stayed away from them and deprived them of nutrients. And what this suggests is that the endometrium or the uterus lining is acting like a gatekeeper, So it's letting through embryos that it thinks has a good chance of surviving and then shutting out others that have little chance of surviving.
1: It seems like this mechanism um, may also be at work uh, in women who struggle to get pregnant in the first place. Is that right? Yeah, so for women who
3: struggle to get pregnant in the first place, um, what's thought now is that maybe this endometrium sensor is on a slightly wrong setting. And so it's actually not letting through any embryos at all regardless of how healthy they are. And that means that it's, you know, a woman can't get pregnant at all. And hopefully understanding why the endometrium sensor might be a little off for these women will help um, come up with new treatments.
1: There's a bit of a paradox, isn't there, that women who experience recurrent miscarriages, who've had um, more than three in a row, they tend to become pregnant faster than other women. It's absolutely devastating for them. I mean, what's going on there? Yeah, so you're right. They often seem to fall
3: pregnant faster um, than other women, but then they have all these miscarriages. And potentially what's happening there is that the endometrium sensor is also on a wrong setting, but a different wrong setting. So for them, potentially the endometrium is letting through too many embryos, including ones that have significant chromosomal abnormalities. And then those embryos then can't develop properly, which will lead to a later miscarriage or stillbirth.
1: When I was uh, struggling to get pregnant, I remember being told by a consultant that I was subfertile and that I wouldn't be able to conceive naturally. And then I went on to have six miscarriages. Uh, so uh, to me, it's fascinating that this is two sides of the same problem.
3: Yeah, so one of the researchers I spoke to said that recurrent miscarriage is a particularly cruel thing because it makes women feel like they're serial rejectors of babies which is obviously a horrible thing. But he said, you know, when he tells these patients that actually it might be the opposite problem, they're actually serial acceptors of babies um, that nature never intended to make it. um, He said that that often makes people feel a lot better about themselves.
1: When you miscarried, did you find any comfort in the science? Did you turn to the scientific literature for help at all?
3: Yeah I, I definitely did and I did find it quite comforting because I think when it first happened I thought that it might be because I'd done something wrong or, or that there was something wrong with me and then it was quite comforting to learn that actually it was probably just because of a random genetic error that couldn't be helped.
1: Now women who struggle to get pregnant or who have lost several babies are just desperate for a treatment that will work. As exciting as this research is it does still sound like we're a long way off from that treatment that people so desperately want.
3: Yeah, that's true. But I think hopefully understanding why the endometrium sensor is off for some women will lead to new treatments for infertility and recurrent miscarriage. And for other couples, I think just knowing why miscarriages happen might provide some level of comfort and take blame out of the equation.
1: I think one of the really important takeaways from all of this is that it's not the women's fault from working too hard or eating the wrong thing. And as you say, most miscarriages are unavoidable. Another takeaway is that it's just so common and that we need to be talking about this as well. Definitely. And I think once I was armed with those facts,
3: when I fell pregnant the second time, I felt a lot better prepared for the possibility of something going wrong And I knew that if it it happened again, I wouldn't feel any kind of personal blame. And then I think when I finally did give birth to my son, just knowing that elaborate vetting process that he had to go through made me possibly even appreciate him even more.
1: Well, congratulations on your healthy son, Alice. I'm I'm glad uh, your story ended happily. There's more about the science of miscarriage in this week's magazine. And if you've been affected by this story, organisations like the Miscarriage Association in the UK have a brilliant website and can offer help and support.
0: That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Adam. And thanks to our Australia reporter, Alice Klein. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout.
1: Yes, go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter POD20 at checkout for your discount. Do share your love for our show with your friends and family and spread the word. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. Until next time, take care and goodbye.
2: Goodbye.